Amen. Please be seated. If you turn in your Bible to the end of John 20, look at verses 24 through 31 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin. Getting close to the end here, John's gospel. John's gospel is, um, is one of the most important, influential things ever written in the history of the world. Uh, every single human being should have the opportunity to, um, to hear John's gospel, to read John's gospel for themselves. For good reason. It's been the first thing that Christians recommend frequently to their, um, their unbelieving friends or to new believers. They say, read this. Let's talk about this together, and it'll change your life. If you've never read John's Gospel, you should drop whatever it is you're reading right now, and you should read it. Go home. Children, if you've never read John's Gospel, read it. Um, read it today. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's impossible to overstate the importance of this book, John's Gospel, that we've been looking at. So what's it about? It's one of the most important things ever written. What's it about? What's it for? Why did John write it? What expectations should we have when we read it? What are we looking to get out of it? What can we hope and pray for our friends as they read it? What do we hope that they'll get out of it? What's the main takeaway from such an important writing as this? We have it in our passage this morning. John wrote his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John didn't write his gospel just to tell a nice story for your entertainment. It wasn't written to provide you with some historical but ultimately irrelevant information to your life. It wasn't even written to give you a good example to inspire you to, to live a really religious, moral, good life. It was written so that you and every reader... Everybody in the whole world, really, when they read this gospel, would believe you would have faith in someone, someone else, someone not yourself. You'd have faith in this one person, and that's Jesus. It was written so that we would all entrust ourselves to Jesus, knowing who he is, knowing that he's the Son of God, he's, a, he's the Christ, he's the one who's been anointed with the Holy Spirit of God. John says that by placing our confidence in Jesus, that's what it means to believe. Those words, um, belief and faith and trust, it's all the same word in the original language. Um, John says that by placing our confidence in him, in Jesus, through the union of faith, our trusting in him, then then Christ's life with God becomes ours vicariously. And that's why he has written this gospel, so that that may happen. So that's what we're going to look at this morning as we read uh, the scripture. Let's pray, then we'll, then we'll read the passage together. <clears throat> Father, we uh, look at your word frequently, regularly. Some of us, even daily, look at your word and without your help, without your Spirit's help, uh, we might understand it, but it wouldn't have the impact that it's supposed to have in our lives. We pray that you would bring about that impact by your Spirit's work now as we consider your word 
Help us to trust in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. and Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So believing that, uh, that Jesus is the Christ, Christ, again, means it's that, it's that word Messiah. It's the anointed one. He's the one who has the Holy Spirit of God. Um, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. Believing that and having life in his name is absolutely the most important thing that can happen in anybody's life. The most important thing that can happen in a person's life. It's important to you whether you're a new convert Someone who's new to the church, new to Christianity. You didn't believe yesterday, but today you do. And once and for all, you've entrusted your life to Jesus. It's also important for you in your lifelong daily walk with Jesus, continually turning away from trusting yourself for life in your own name, life with God that you've been able to manage on your own, in and of yourself, turning away from that, on a regular basis, daily, moment by moment, to Christ by faith in him, placing your confidence in him for life with God in his name. <clears throat> in fact, that's what the whole Christian life is. It's living with God rather than living apart from God. It's living with God through faith in Jesus Christ, experiencing Christ's own life with God, really, as as a free gift of God's grace to us through faith, that we just receive through faith, trusting Christ. So true eternal life with God can only be had vicariously through Jesus. Jesus is the only one who's the Christ. He's the anointed one, the spirit-anointed one. He's the only one who has this life with God. And, uh, and so if you're going to access life with God, it's going to be through him. It's going to be vicarious. It's going to be as you trust in him by believing that he represents us in our relationship to God. He represents us in relationship to God the Father. In his life, he represents us. In his death, he represents us. In his resurrection and his ascension, where he is right now at God's right hand, he represents us. It's his life with God that we have through faith. 
That's what life in his name means. So that's the only way to have it. And Christians come to God not in our own name. We don't. We abandon our own name. We say that what we've done and the life that we've managed to achieve has been really, uh, in effect, just living apart from God and going in the other direction. And, um, and so we come not in our own name. We come in Jesus' name by faith, that is, trusting that Jesus is, in fact, our representative, always, at every moment. His life with God is accessible to us through faith because he's our representative, and we trust that God receives us always, at every moment, God receives us just as he received Jesus on our behalf, his beloved son. But God knows that we have big problems with believing. (laughs) Big problems with believing that. And therefore experiencing life with God in Jesus' name. He knows we have huge problems. In fact, unbelief is our biggest problem in life. We don't trust God. God. We don't trust Christ. We don't entrust ourselves to him. In fact, that sounds um, a little too passive or neutral. It's not just that we sort of don't trust him. We're against trusting him. That's, that's the way the Bible portrays it. We are against trusting God. We distrust him. That's a little more active. We disbelieve him. We consider him to be untrustworthy. That's, that's a pretty big slight to consider God untrustworthy, not worthy of my trust. And we resist faith in him. We are suspicious of him. We're skeptical. Thomas here is the skeptical one. Maybe we've come to think that skepticism is kind of neutral. It's just like you're weighing all your options and you just haven't quite decided yet and not really sure You're stuck here in the middle. You can go this way or that. I'm skeptical. That's not what skepticism is. It doesn't just mean that we're unsure. It means that we're inclined to doubt. We've already chosen against God. We've already considered him untrustworthy. This describes the whole identity of people who have not come to faith in Christ. The whole identity of unbelievers. That's why we call those outside the church unbelievers. We don't just call them non-followers, non-disciples, or really bad people or something. That's not what we call them. We call them unbelievers. Unbelief is definitive. Unbelief is the basic nature of people apart from Christ, apart from entrusting their lives to Christ. Unbelief. But then even... For believers, after we entrust ourselves to Jesus for our salvation, our main problem throughout our lives, our main problem is that we instinctively doubt God's word. We revert to doubt and skepticism and disbelief. We, we distrust him. We doubt his word. We doubt his love. We doubt his wisdom. We revert to acting as if God were untrustworthy. That's our big problem. Even for people in the church, for believers. That's what happens whenever you take life back in your own hands, to live it in your own name. If I'm going to live in my own name before God, um, it's because I haven't trusted him. uh, So whenever you disregard, whenever you disobey God's word, whenever you sin, you've said you lack confidence in who God is, the way that he's revealed himself to you, and what he's done for you. 
what he promises to do for you. You lack confidence in that, in his goodness and his love. You don't trust his reality. You don't trust his interpretation of events in your life. You don't trust his instructions. So what we have in Thomas is someone who really, I think, for the first time is coming to true faith in Christ, really to trust in the risen Lord Jesus. But the experience doesn't just inform those who are coming to faith for the first time, new converts. It does. New converts or unbelievers should pay attention to Thomas's interaction with Jesus here. But the experience also informs believers. <coughs> so new converts and believers alike, as all people everywhere, need to turn constantly from disbelieving to believing. So Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And really, just super quick, he's called the twin. We've looked at that before. Actually, Thomas has shown up in John's gospel a few times before. Uh, he's called the twin because it's like there's two people living in him. <laughs> he's a divided person. And sometimes he shows allegiance and loyalty to Christ. And sometimes you see that's a really big mixed motive for him. And he's, he's really wrestling. And here he obviously struggles to even trust Christ. So uh, it's like there's two people living in him. And I think uh, there's, um, you know, historical uh, speculation, at least throughout the ages, that that's why he's called the twin. It's like there's two people going on inside of Thomas. And so he wasn't with them the first time Jesus came. Last week, we, we saw how the risen Lord Jesus, he's, he's died, he's come back to life, never to die again. He's started to appear to his disciples. And he appeared in the locked room to stand with the, the disciples. Uh, they sort of just go by the name the Twelve, even though on that particular day, he uh, really only appeared to maybe ten of them because Judas isn't there and apparently Thomas wasn't there. But it's the main core group of his disciples, the one who's... Uh, whose names we see in the lists of the disciples in the Gospels um, who remain apostles. So he comes to stand with them, to be with them, just to give, him, give them his peace, to give them the Holy Spirit, to give them their mission, to carry his life into the world. And so it seems his main group, the twelve, were all there except for Judas and apparently Thomas, and they all had trouble All of them had trouble accepting the reality of Jesus' resurrection, but his appearance to them had helped them. And and finally, somewhere in the middle of that encounter, they started to become glad. No, this, this is really starting to sink in. Jesus really is alive from the dead, and he's here with us. But Thomas had missed out on that for whatever reason. It doesn't say where he was, what he was doing. Um, Maybe he was keeping watch outside the door. I don't know. But uh, Thomas had missed out. And ultimately, the fact that Thomas missed out was the perfect setup for this occasion so that John could record this for us. Uh, It's a wonderful record that we have of Thomas' interaction with Jesus here so that we could see Thomas come to faith and so that we could be helped by the process that he goes through as we go through that same process, as we turn from disbelief to faith. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. We have. And Thomas said, really, that's so cool. Tell me more. It's so believable. It's so easy to believe your account of things. It's almost like I was there. Um, No, nothing like that. Thomas would not be easy to convince. In fact, his response to them is unreasonably negative. Unreasonably negative. 
he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. The language is pretty strong language. It's not a thoughtful, neutral, clinically detached investigation of truth claims. He's not just weighing out all his options. This is an over-the-top, personal, emotional reaction. It's not to say emotions are bad, but this is a strong reaction that he's having. He could have just said, when they said, we have seen the Lord, oh man, I missed out. I wish I had seen him. I'm just going to have to see him to believe what you're saying. Like you did. You saw him. I'd like to see him too. But instead he said, your arguments will never persuade me. Nothing will persuade me. I will never believe unless my ghastly demands are met. And he insists on this unthinkable standard of proof. Who's going to do that? Who's going to press his hand into the side of someone who died and there's a spear wound and it's, but he's back to life again? Who's going to do that? Nobody's going to do that. His demand for evidence is so outlandish that we really should be tipped off to the fact he's just saying it because he doesn't want to believe it. He doesn't want to believe it. What's happening is that Thomas is refusing to believe. He says, I'll never believe until these, these ridiculous demands are met. He's refusing to believe. He's resolutely set against it. He resists faith in the risen Lord Jesus. For whatever reason, he's antagonistic to the idea that Jesus is alive from the dead, that he can continue to have a relationship with Jesus in any way. He isn't just neutral. So he could go with either belief or unbelief, make that decision for himself, based on how he judges the facts as they present themselves to him. He isn't just neutral. He disbelieves. That's his starting point. Not neutrality. Disbelief, resistance. In fact, uh, uh, Thomas's absurd demand for evidence um, is really a, a defensive strategy against believing. He demands to see what he demands so that he won't have to believe. Because <laughs> that's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And when we don't want something to be true, we make it impossible for ourselves to be convinced. And we live with blinders. We live in denial. We do that to ourselves. Paul says in Romans, he says we're suppressing the truth when we do that. That's pretty active, suppressing the truth. We can acknowledge that much about ourselves, can't we, that we do stuff like that. We prefer to live in denial when, when we don't want to believe that something's true. It's unpleasant to be proven wrong especially when we're proven wrong about something that's really important to us. Now, who knows why exactly Thomas refused to believe? It doesn't say. Who knows why he personally wouldn't want the good news of the resurrection to be true? It kind of doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The, the Bible describes unbelief as folly. It's pretty offensive language to us. The Bible says it frequently. 
The, the Bible describes unbelief as folly and insanity. Even in the beginning, Genesis 3, where there's a description of how this whole thing came about, this sin. There's no explanation for it. It, it ultimately doesn't make any sense. Unbelief, distrusting God, doesn't make any sense. There's no reasonable justification for it. You can't get down to a point in Thomas's life underneath all the motives where you ask, why is he so resistant to this idea? And you find something that's like, oh, yeah, well, I guess that makes sense. It won't make sense for all any of us why we uh, disbelieve God. Nevertheless, the Bible makes it clear that we are all prone to it. We're all predisposed to unbelief. We do what is inexplicable, nonsensical, and unjustifiable all day long when we distrust God, when we disbelieve him, when we doubt him. But we can give thanks to God that he doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just leave us there, even though we can imagine how offensive that is. He doesn't just leave us in our unbelief. Eight days later, and so this is um, you know, verse 26, eight days later, it's the inclusive reckoning of time the Jews used. So it's basically it's talking about the following Sunday. Apparently Jesus likes to meet with his people on Sundays. His disciples were inside again, so not much has changed for them. They believe Jesus is alive from the dead, but they, it hasn't really propelled them out. They're still living in fear. The, the room is still locked. Um, but Thomas was with them this time. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So again, it's the locked doors. They're still afraid. They're being secretive about their meeting. Really, all the disciples are still struggling to uh, believe or they're struggling with unbelief. It's a normal experience for all of us. They weren't terribly bad people. They're fairly representative of, of us. But instead of being offended, Jesus is he's not. He's not exasperated. He doesn't lose patience. He doesn't scold them and say, how many times i got to... Come on! Come on, believe! I'm right here. He's not doing that. I would probably do that. He doesn't do that. He looks to help them. He looks to help his disciples who struggle to believe, and he always will. He always looks to help us. We struggle with, with believing in him. We think that that wrecks our relationship with him. He has patience. He comes to us to help our unbelief. And he says, peace be with you. He wants our relationship with God to be good. He wants us to know that it's good in spite of our doubts. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. I mean, it's almost funny. It's kind of like a challenge. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. He doesn't say, come down off the fence. I know you haven't decided yet about whether I'm real or not yet. I know you're neutral. You need to just a little bit push you this way. He says, stop disbelieving and believe. Jesus knew Thomas's over-the-top demand for evidence. He, he knew it. He knew that he had said it. It really amounted to a defensive strategy against the faith. Jesus knew everything about it. He hears everything. He knows everything. He knows your heart. Not just Thomas's heart. He knows your heart. He knows things about you that you won't allow yourself to know about you. Jesus was willing to engage Thomas. 
He didn't want Thomas stuck in his unbelief anymore because it was bad for Thomas. Because Jesus had come to offer life with God through faith. Just imagine, God, he's the creator, he's the source of all reality. He's the source of all things that are believable and concrete and trustworthy and dependable. He's the source of all those things. If anything at all is real, it's because he lent reality to it when he created it. Reality and dependability, that starts with him, this, this God. And we go around actively doubting, disbelieving, distrusting him constantly. And it's like what Thomas is doing here. <clears throat> it's like saying about the Queen of England, unless I sit on her throne, unless I eat at her table, unless I sleep in her bed, I will never believe the reports about her, that she is who... Everybody says she is. In your denial, you would be demanding what is a preposterous level of intimacy. Quite invasive to go sit on her throne, eat at her table, and sleep in her bed, isn't it? An invasion of privacy. It's too much intimacy. So what if the queen invites you to come and do all those things? Come sit on my throne and eat at my table and, here, sleep in my bed. The remarkable thing about that would be that she's opening her very life to you in this preposterous intimacy, unimaginable intimacy, to you, an impertinent skeptic. Time and time again, all along the way, Jesus has done just that. He's condescended. To show that he is who he says he is, that he can be trusted for life with God. Thomas wasn't probably serious about the level of intimacy that he was demanding as proof, as evidence for Jesus. But Jesus was absolutely serious. Here are the wounds. I got them for you. You can touch them. They belong to you just as much as they belong to me. I'm yours, Thomas. Jesus has also invited you all the way in like that. All the way in. Preposterous intimacy. He's given himself for you. He's given himself to you. His wounds belong to you as much as they belong to him. He's yours. To be united to him spiritually. United. Through faith, that's, that's no invasion of his privacy. He's the one who invades your privacy. He's the one who's welcomed you into the deepest intimacy with himself. Everything about him is good. Everything about him is true. We can't even, we can't cope with that kind of intimacy. If we, I mean, sometimes on the deathbed is the greatest intimacy we ever have with anybody. We really open ourselves up to them. They've opened themselves up to us, and then they're gone. Well, what if they came back and that same intimacy, or even greater, were available forever? That's what it's like. Jesus 
comes and gives you unbelievable intimacy, he tells you and all people everywhere, because, because he's good, because he's true, stop disbelieving. Believe. Stop being an unbeliever. Be a believer. He exposes your what is it, impertinent, um, skeptical resistance. And he says, enough of that. Come here. Come here. Now let me be good for you. And at this point, finally, Thomas's response is as it should be. My Lord and my God. It's the greatest confession that we see in John's gospel. It's the climactic confession. Everything's ramping up to this right before this purpose statement that John gives us. This is the confession John wants us all to make in response to Jesus. It's the confession Jesus wants us to make in response to him. He wants you to make this response when you trust in him, when you realize he's opened up his life and, and invited you all the way in. My Lord and my God, stop being his enemy. Come into his family. Stop rebelling against him and submit to him and open your life to him. Stop ignoring him. Build your whole life around him. Stop doubting him and trust him and say, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to Thomas, you've believed because you've seen me. That's okay. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So there's a a bit of a rebuke implied here. Thomas really should have believed when the other disciples told him, we've seen him alive. He He should have said, okay, wow, and thought about that and believed it. Thomas really didn't need the visible, tangible, over-the-top evidence that he demanded. He didn't need that. That was a defensive strategy for him. He should have recognized that that was a defensive strategy for himself. He should have recognized his own tendency toward unbelief. He should have forsaken that attitude toward Jesus. He should have repented and believed and entrusted himself to Christ upon hearing the good news of the resurrection. He should have done that. So should you, every one of you. You should not expect Jesus to meet visible, tangible demands for evidence. That's not why this passage is given to us. We can say, see, now, if Jesus came to me like he did to Thomas and showed me his wounds and said, yes, you can touch me now, now, I'll believe. No, that's all wrong. That's all wrong. You should recognize that your demands for evidence are probably probably just your defensive strategies against trusting him. And Jesus calls you to stop doing that and believe through the eyewitness testimony of his disciples. For various reasons, it's, it's a pretty trustworthy report. He not only commands you to believe even though you haven't seen him, even though that can be hard for us, it can. He's not only commanding you to do that, He's assuring you that you're blessed if you do that. You're blessed if you trust his word, the word about him, the report of his resurrection, who he is and what he's done for us. Peter says that. First Peter chapter 1, he says, though you have not seen him, so he's writing to a church that he probably 
planted or Christians that he knows that they weren't among the original eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Uh, They've believed, as Jesus had said in John 17, there's going to be a whole lot of people who believe through their word, through the disciples' word. And that's who he's talking to. He says, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You'll be blessed if you believe in Jesus, even though you haven't seen him. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written in this book, but these are written so that you'd believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, life with God in his name. It's his life, with, his life given to you that you can have by faith. So um, the application, read that gospel. <laughs> read this gospel. Read the other Gospels. See what the Scriptures have to say about Jesus. Read all the Scriptures and believe. Stop disbelieving God. Believe God and in his Christ. Believe once and for all right now if you've never done that before. Believe every day that Jesus' life with God counts for you vicariously and you will be blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do believe. We pray that you'd help our unbelief. We know that you're the kind of God who wants to help our unbelief, even though it's, uh, it's remarkably offensive that, that we would doubt you, that we would distrust you, that we'd have problems considering who you are and what you've done for us in the history of the world, in creation and in redemption, as we've seen in the scriptures, clearly seen in Jesus Christ, yet we still struggle with our doubts. That's the kind of people we are. Would you please be to us the kind of God that you are? Help us with our faith. Help us to trust in Christ. Would you gently come alongside those who struggle so much to trust that you are good and that intimacy with you is good? We pray that you would overcome all of our fears, all our anger toward you, all our rebellion against you as we see Jesus as he's set forth in the gospel. We pray that through faith, everyone in this room, all of our friends, all of our family, even those who don't yet know you, would rest and place confident in Christ for life with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.